Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get into this week's Spike podcast, I've got something really exciting I want to tell you about. The legendary historian David Starkey will be joining Brendan O'Neill for a special live recording of his podcast. It's on Tuesday, the 14th of December. It'll be live on Zoom and they'll be talking about the history wars, green hysteria, the tyranny of woke and so much more. Spiked supporters can get in for free. If you're a Spiked supporter, you can claim your ticket now from the supporters hub. If you're not a Spiked supporter yet, then why not sign up today? And you'll get free access to this event, plus a whole host of other exciting perks. Tickets will go on general sale next week if there's any spaces remaining, but Spike supporters always get first dibs. So become a Spike supporter now to get your ticket before they're gone. Sign up at spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. That's spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And no Tom Slater, so filling in we have Mail Plus columnist Charlie Peters. Hello. Coming up on the show, the Omicron variant, Chinese censorship and the annual attempt to cancel Christmas. So we have a new variant of covid It feels a little bit like deja vu. We've had those dreary press conferences once again. We have experts telling us to be terrified. Some are saying that it's going to evade the vaccines. Some are saying it's going to be fine. We also have journalists calling for another lockdown on cue as ever. I mean, Ella, what have you made of the the sort of uh, response to this new variant so far? Well, it's it's like deja vu or it's just like plain old Groundhog Day. It's literally Mm. copy and paste from what happened last year in the run-up to Christmas, in particular even the way in which you have a government that even in the last 24 hours has gone from everything's fine, it's just a few masks, don't panic, to no, you don't, you you know, you can still have your Christmas party to then one minister saying, oh, but maybe you shouldn't kiss under the mistletoe. And then another minister on the Today programme this morning saying, well, actually, if you have a big Christmas party, that's probably not sensible. And so it just snowballs in the same way. And But the really crucial point that very few people are making is that as a society, scientifically, epidemiologically and socially, we are not in the same place that we were in December 2020. Tom Slater in his um, column this week made a really important point uh, that, that again, has been ignored largely, which is that ONS data shows that 90% of people um, in this country have some form of antibodies, whether that's from injection or infection. And yes, we know that antibodies wane, but with the rollout of the booster jab and blah, blah, you see where I'm going with vaccinations mean we're in a very good place. That just isn't cutting through with the either the hysteria among the uh, kind of commentators and news reporters who are sort of frothing at the mouth after each press conference to ask for more restrictions and with politicians themselves. And I think it shows that the response to the variant isn't anything to do with any kind of serious risk to health yeah. because we still are in the dark, largely speaking, about Omicron. Um, we know that it's uh, particularly more transmissible, but we're not sure whether that will lead to more hospitalizations, which is the key thing. Um, but it's not really about that. What it's about is being seen to do the right thing. In mm. fact, government has been, um, and Boris Johnson has been praised by some um, media commentators for being precautionary, for, for not waiting around, for having a knee-jerk reaction. And I think that tells you that this has become far more political than it is really scientific. And therefore, those of us who are sitting at home shouldn't listen to Theresa Coffey say that you can't kiss a stranger under the mistletoe and should actually think for, you know, until we start thinking for ourselves and saying, 
We know that we've done the right thing. Do we have to say how high when the government says jump? Yeah. I think probably most people are thinking, no, I don't. Yeah. I mean, Charlie, do you, do you agree with that? It's becoming the, the sort of fear that's being generated is becoming increasingly distant from the facts. I mean, a lot of the messaging from the WHO is actually saying that, hang on, this could be quite mild. We don't have any evidence yet that it evades the vaccine. And yet it feels nevertheless, certainly in the media, certainly among politics, that you know, whatever happens, no matter what position we're in, we have to do something drastic all the time. It certainly feels like deja vu, except the people who underreacted last time have now, I suppose, they feel this opportunity to make up for their failures in March 2020 when um, they're on the news saying, don't panic, don't wear a mask, don't worry about this, it'll pass over in a few months or even less, are now um, reacting incredibly vociferously and yeah. with extreme anger and panic and condemnation for those who don't match their mood. Um, the best example of this, I think, is Jenny uh, Harris. Yeah. Recently going into a huge like, flap stage five over this variant, but you know, in March 2020, um, before she was promoted as the head of this new health security agency, she was saying, don't cancel big events, you know, you know, make the most of it. This is a good time. No, fear is the real virus, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, um, We've all seen her, um, the video has gone viral so many times mm-hmm. since then of Jenny Harris saying, don't wear a mask, it could be dangerous. Right, right. <laughs> and, and now I think um, perhaps she's seen this this clip of herself so many times, she thinks now's my chance to to prove to the country that I am actually tough on the virus. It's all messaging, it's all about you know your personality and your your position to the public and it is political and so this is the the latest reaction there is totally a disconnect between what they're saying and the science and and obviously you know th- this is quite bad for the country having new kind of uh, measures new impositions essentially new laws without really much evidence for for the harms um you know that we're trying to prevent but isn't it even worse for, you know, places around the world, like, say, like South Africa? I mean, a lot of people, politicians from South Africa and um, experts from South Africa have said you're really overreacting. You're essentially punishing us mm-hmm. for having discovered the Omicron variant. I mean, what do you make of that, Ella? Well, it's really important to point out that Omicron didn't originate in South Africa, that actually cases were found. Uh, well, we don't know where it yeah, we don't, from, We don't actually. know, but we know that cases were found of it across Europe before the point at which it was announced as being yeah. discovered in um, South Africa. And there is a little bit of kind of South Africa's been seen as this sort of plague-ridden country that uh, no one wants to have anything to do with. And the narrative around how um, travel to and from that place is described does make your hackles rise a bit, you think. It's, it's like a touch of kind of xenophobia in the air. <laughs> in, in fact, um, it was it was funny watching one of the US press conferences where Anthony Fauci was unable to defend you know, why he'd essentially put travel bans on a number of countries where they hadn't actually found a single case of the Omicron mm-hmm. variant. They just happened to be in Southern Africa, you know. And I think Charlie raises a really important point about the change of, uh, you know, people being able to admit that they've changed their mind. So Jenny Harris might be pro- trying to profit off the fact that she's making up for lost time or that she had a different position back in March 2020 and to the one that she has now. But the rest of us are seemingly unable to admit that you know, we can change our approach to this. Mm. So whereas lockdowns and restrictions and mask wearing and all that kind of stuff made sense in emergency situations, it's definitely made sense when before we had the vaccine and right. before we had the protection that we have that science and, you know, those great breakthroughs have given us today. And yet we are not able to see that we might do things differently now. I mean, it's it's almost kind of like people are being willfully blind to the fact that we are still hearing from doctors about cancer backlogs. Mm. On Newsnight the other night, there was a GP on who was saying, you know, trying to remind people that 
having restrictions don't come with no harm. Yeah. Uh, James O'Brien was on LBC ranting about, you know, what, I mean, he's always ranting, but he was ranting about <laughs> what harm does it do you? You know, your glasses fog up, you wear a few masks. Oh, you sit in the Phantom of the Opera and you think you, you can't really enjoy it because you've got a bit, little bit of material on your face. And what he's not willing to admit or understand is that it's of course a mask or you know restriction like that individually is probably a small price to pay but if you have a narrative that restrictions are coming in everyone's going to have to wear masks that has a knock-on effect of people cancelling their bookings not going to the pub that pub loses money people at that pub lose their jobs or you know people decide actually I'm not going to have granny around for Christmas because it's too um, you know worrying I'm freaked out granny spends a love of Christmas alone you know we know that people are dying in care homes from loneliness and dementia, all that kind of stuff. It just hasn't cut through. And it makes you very depressed, I have to say, because you know, the you end up talking all the time in terms of harms when actually we could be talking about positive things that we've said many times on this podcast, that we are in a good place mm. because of the feats of humanity and science. Why aren't we able to celebrate that? Why are we so addicted to doom? And in, in terms of just masks, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, some, you know, there are some people who maybe exaggerate the harm, you know, the annoyance of wearing a mask oh, it's oh, abuse I and all that I, yeah, it's no, abuse yeah, I can't that. breathe blah 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 but there, the the harm is as you say it, it it basically perpetuates fear to a certain extent and you know even the fact that it's annoying means that people don't want to go out so yeah. The reason the government actually got rid of masks in England in the summer, which even they don't talk about for whatever reason, but you can you can look it up in their um, in their sort of events research program. They basically found they did quite a large survey. They said that like the amount of people, the amount of attendance at events would drop by you know more than a quarter if people were made to wear masks. I mean that's a significant blow to the economy. So people think about it in terms of like oh it costs you a pound to get a little cloth mask. No, the cost the broader social cost is actually huge. Yeah, they are always looking at the hole in the barn door, not the barn mm. door itself. And generally speaking, British people are, and people who live in the UK are not those who like to mask up and yeah. cover their face. It's a face-to-face society and it might be a quid and a bit of uh, discomfort, but actually it, it covers a broader sense of social ill, which people very much want to avoid. And I think they find very much so that this uh, the narrative around mask wearing as being, oh, it's just this tiny thing you've got to get over as being totally overhyped and fake and predominantly coming from people who seem almost really delighted <laughs> that yeah. a new variant has been discovered. Um, I don't know the name of the scientist I saw tweeting. One of the many American personalities that have been introduced to us over the last year of um, science person, science mm. person who has 600,000 Twitter followers, loves a 50 tweet thread about how bad everything is. Anyway, they were absolutely delighted about the discovery of variant and, um, were very keen, perhaps, that they were back in the spotlight again, that their fears were being rediscovered, but also, I think, also that they could tell us what to do again. There was a sense that, great, I can now bully you into wearing a mask, and if you don't, you're a bad person who is selfish and nasty. No, I just think you're wrong. If if everything's fine, then we don't need these people, I guess. We should talk a little bit about Europe before we move on, partly because... Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, has said that Europe needs a serious conversation about uh, compulsory vaccination. We talked about what's going on in Austria on the podcast last week. Germany has just announced its uh, lockdown for the unvaccinated. I mean, Ella, is this, this is almost a grim sense of inevitability that we're just going down, or Europe is at least going down this path. And there is no reckoning or no willingness to ask the question of why it is that Europe 
has been such a failure in relation to rolling out vaccination program. What, you know, and you get accused of being kind of like Brexit nationalist if you raise this <laughs> question of why the UK has been so successful and why in places like, you know, like we said this in the podcast last week, incredibly rich places, wealthy countries like mm-hmm. Germany, Austria. Why is it? Could it perhaps be to do with the fact that Ursula von der Leyen, other EU leaders, Emmanuel Macron and Merkel were all, rel- you know, either relatively down or downright against yeah. the vaccines like AstraZeneca at the start, that there was a huge amount of ret- kind of political reticence to uh, support the um, innovation around the vaccine when it first came out because it was seen as a Brexit Britain thing. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Matt Hancock was just grandstanding about how successful um, the Oxford vaccine had been. All of those chickens are coming home to roost and I'm not delighting in that because mm. we have to remember that people are dying in Europe and they are neighbours and our allies and our comrades and we don't, I'm, you know, no one wants to see that. The question is, practically, how are you going to get jabs in arms? And we know that if you have a level of vaccine hesitancy, either the kind of nuttier side or the just, you know, the just sort of more sensible, more reasonable, I'm not really sure, so I don't know that much about it, forcing it for a mandate is only going to drive people further into not hesitancy, but outright opposition. And that's going to cost lives. Charlie, anything you want to add on Europe? as all three of us might have been involved very very keenly on pushing through Brexit in the years that followed the vote, I think there can be no clearer sign of the luck <laughs> that we had in getting it over the line in December 2019 and pushing the vote into next year, that months later we were faced with a situation that that terribly bureaucratic, slow, doubtful and internal organisation rejected the innovation and the brilliance that is leading us away from sickness and infection and has left them behind. I feel very, very sorry for them. But at the same time, I am delighted that we managed to jump ship from that sinking one. Spiked is producing more brilliant content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, usually myself. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to today on Spiked. So last month, Disney Plus launched its streaming service in Hong Kong. And many eagle-eyed viewers will have noticed a glaring omission in The Simpsons, uh, one of its episodes, which essentially mocks China, mocks the Tiananmen Square massacre or its absence. there's There's a sign that says nothing happened here in 1989. And um, makes fun of uh, Mao Zedong's murderous reign was missing from the service. So essentially, what we seem to have here is a big Western company capitulating to China, not even being forced, but willingly censoring in advance to us to not upset the Chinese government. Charlie, what do you make of that? I think it's not fair to say they're not being forced because there is, I think, a, a history that they know that if they do do it, they will be forced and there is no... The anticipation. Yeah, there's a total the, anticipation yeah. of the force. They know that there is no stone that will be left unturned by those senses. God knows how many of them there are who are just peering through media that comes into the country. We just don't know the extent of that control. Um, but obviously it's incredibly embarrassing. All right? It's embarrassing for, for us mm. <laughs> that um, you know the, the biggest cultural institutions that we have that we export to the world are so cowardly. Um, I can understand in some cases that you don't export your nation's values to another one. right? And I think people always point out around 
one of the many uh, pride months that we have every year it's essentially a 12 month thing these days right yeah well whatever some organization has its pride month the um the europe twitter account has a pride flag and then the middle eastern one doesn't and everyone's like oh this is shocking where's their commitment to um, lgbt rights but they know full well that that would not be politically accepted in that country so why put themselves at that huge disadvantage that seems somewhat different to a political level of capitulation about just a joke yeah. about a country. It's so it's so minute, but reveals the extent of the control over there. And and also, I mean, of course, Hong Kongers are not exactly unaware of the Tiananmen Square massacre. You know, they traditionally hold a vigil every year mm-hmm. commemorating this. Uh, you know, the Chinese government has cracked down on it under the guise of COVID measures the last couple of years. Um, but it is quite a quite a scary prospect, isn't it, Ella? I think maybe you're being a little bit too soft on Disney because I think it reveals the extent to which um, they are contradicting themselves and playing double standards in relation to their global persona. So mm. the recent Marvel film Eternals um, came out and it's got some kind of uh, well, a character in it that there's a, there's a gay kiss or something. It's got some kind of LGBT character that they're very proud about and... Um, Angelina Jolie and some of the other stars that were in the film made a big stink of celebrating Disney and Marvel for not refusing to cut those scenes when it was exported to audiences in the Middle East and um, Saudi Arabia and other places. And there was this kind of celebration of how Disney is so, you know, so woke in a way that they were Mm. celebrating that, that they weren't going to capitulate to uh, foreign censors. And then when it comes to the CCP, yeah. that all goes out the window. And the fact, and and more importantly, there has been really no stink about it. There's been a couple of um, articles for with commentators talking about it, but any of the people who are involved in um, Disney's production, or any of the people that are so proud to wear the pride flag and be right on when it when it's easy for them, I think, are being silent now. The double standards of uh, in the inability of to criticise China, I think, is as Brendan O'Neill mentioned in his column this week. One, it's a kind of commercial thing because yeah. they basically Disney doesn't want to lose out money to a massive audience um, uh, of Chinese viewers, and so they're going to capitulate. And it's a reminder to everyone who, who like cheers Ben and Jerry's for putting out kind of woke adverts or gets behind BLM, um, the BLM announcement that Disney itself put out. Yeah. That corporations are woke for cash. They yeah. are not. They don't. They're yeah. not kind of like ideological bastions that we should get behind. But I think also it's going to become more important as conversations about China and Chinese influence have to be dealt with. And when the things that are taking place, like the um, the persecution of the Uyghur Muslims, like the kind of bizarre situation that's happening around the disappearance or non-disappearance or who knows of this tennis star. People are going to have to start finding their backbone and criticising the CCP, even if it hurts them in the pocket. And we should hold, if Disney wants us to cheer them for being woke when it comes to gay rights, they're going to have to expect to hold the same line when it comes to other issues. I mean, Charlie, what do you make of the sort of contradiction at the heart of this, where you have a company like Disney is, you know, praising Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. and yet not only, you know, appeasing the CCP in this censorship instance, but also filmed a lot of the, it's kind of live action Mulan remake in Xinjiang. The credits give thanks to many of the Xinjiang officials and we all know what is going on there. There is just this, this horrendous hypocrisy here, isn't there? There is a hypocrisy, there's no doubt about it, but um, the core problem here, which I think has been largely largely brushed over in the conversation about um, the double standards towards China, is that I think there is a huge amount of anti-Asian racism among the domestic American politics, um, especially from the left, where um, 
Asian immigrants into the US have wildly outperformed their competitors. Essentially, mm. you know, the uh, they are um, they do great <laughs> on every on every um, life predictor of, of quality of life, education, health, expectancy, wealth. They smash it out of the park, and there is this, um, I think, quite insidious opposition to Asian success in America. And so many of these discussions about um, American culture overseas are a projection of domestic issues into the international sphere. And perhaps they just, a lot of the cases, they just don't really think that Chinese people, Chinese people matter that much. They don't look at China and think, oh, those people need to be protected and supported because at home they don't feel so strongly towards um, Asians in the US in the first place. You remember last year, there was this huge discussion about anti-Asian violence yeah. in the States the discussion that wasn't happening was that a lot of this anti-Asian violence was being perpetrated by by black men who, you know, were unfortunately going through a summer where every action done by a black man was praised to the high heavens. And so you couldn't possibly break the narrative and point out that so much of this violence was being conducted by a, a social group that was being worshipped. And I think the, the, the BLM hypocrisy and the double standards... They exist, but at the same time, there is something much darker playing. I suppose the other the other thing is that this kind of censorship is happening happening with other countries, even countries less powerful than China. So, if you take the World Cup in Qatar, there is a lot less willingness to criticise that than there is willingness to criticise things going on domestically in the US or in the UK. I mean, it was quite telling Gareth Southgate, I think it was last week, saying, you know, we'll all need to educate ourselves about the issues in in Qatar. I mean, meaning we're not going to do anything about it or we're not going to say anything about it. And we're not going to take the knee for that. Again, you know, someone like Enes Kanter, the NBA star, he first made his name in sort of politics for criticising uh, Erdogan and Nike didn't want to sponsor him because uh, essentially they knew it would be bad for business even in Turkey. So there's even these like smaller kind of countries that that um, big corporations will capitulate to that we're expected to sort of allow censorship from. I mean, what do you make of that? So is it, does that for me suggest that it's it's more cowardice than the power of any one nation or government? Yeah, but I mean, it's you end up sounding cynical, but it is the case that cash is king, and it's usually about the, in particular, you know, with the World Cup in particular, it's about conversations about that are not, you know, all the feelings about taking the knee at home and taking a stand and doing the right thing fall by the wayside when you're faced with mass revenue loss yeah. or um, or not being able to play, and I think people need to be more honest about that, which is that. We live in a uh, world where different countries have different views. Mm. And on the one hand, you want to be, I think, Charlie, you sort of alluded to this, you want to be, you know, not respectful in terms of like bowing down to stuff you don't mm -hmm. agree with, but recognising the fact that not everybody thinks the way we think right. in the West, let alone in yeah. the UK. And, you know, you can deal with that. That's part of being a tolerant person. But I think you step into a different kind of territory when you pretend that you want, this is it's kind of like soft power of the West. You pretend mm. that you want to grandstand about all these views and often, and, you know, we've had that, this in discussions that we've had in relation to Afghanistan or wars in the Middle East, where so often the West wants to look like it's exporting liberal and humanistic values um, abroad. But actually, when it comes down to real life examples of where they could make a stand or where they could say something serious, and particularly in relation to China, this is happening a lot. Yeah. Uh, they lose their voice. So... Christmas comes around earlier every year, as we know, as does the attempt seemingly to cancel Christmas. And last year, obviously, COVID cancelled Christmas, of course. <laughs> um, this year, 
we had that perennial Daily Mail PC gone mad story has come up twice of officials trying to essentially erase the word Christmas. So we had the cabinet office uh, suggesting that the government shouldn't use the phrase Christmas in its COVID testing campaign. And we also had a strange case in the EU where um, officials were suggesting that staff should be sensitive about the word Christmas. Charlie, you've written a bit about this uh, in your Mail Plus I column. I the Mail, yes. Oh, I, am, yeah. I am now that person. Yeah, I, am the, yeah. I am now engaged in the annual flap, the annual yeah. fear about Christmas being cancelled. But it's true. I mean... Uh, it's, it's real. <laughs> it's a thing. There is, as I think I wrote in the column, there is every year this thing about, oh my God, Starbucks have got the wrong seasonal cups. They're not yeah. sufficiently festive. This is a capitulation to Islam and the devil, right? But actually... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, sometimes these talk radio hosts, they're, they are looking at a big picture and they're missing a little bit but thankfully at Mail Plus we, uh, we got right down to business and, and found out um, through reporting that there was this 32 page dossier that the EU had retracted via its um, Equality and Diversity Commissioner which said among other things that Christmas should not be referred to when you're discussing the EU's policies in public because it's not inclusive and it might exclude people from non-Christian backgrounds um, ignoring I think uh, much of Europe's Christian heritage and the yeah. fact that Christmas is still a thing that happens and people still do refer to it as such. Um, it also went further in all sorts of wacky other ways with don't call people Mr. or Miss those, you can't assume someone's pronouns really, you know, half baked yeah. 2015 style uh, <laughs> proposals. Um, but yeah, no, the, the, the headline was very much around this, uh, this Christmas issue. Um, but the one in the UK, I think was, was slightly more unnerving because the the report that we had leaked from um, the civil servants found that they were going to push ahead with this. Whereas in in the EU, in Brussels, there was an internal realisation that perhaps this was incredibly stupid and would attract all the wrong headlines, like those by myself. Yeah. And then, <laughs> But in, the, in London, someone had the, the temerity to push it through. And uh, I think this messaging, I think we already see a a reluctance to refer to England and Britain's heritage in all sorts of ways and its culture and its tradition. Um, but the most overt way is when I think that's Christian, right? Yeah. Now it's true, right? That Christianity has declined massively in this country. There's no way of hiding from that. But at the same time, there is still a cultural Christian heritage, which is reflected in our holidays, in our seasonal attitudes and how, how we live our lives. And the removal of that or the the attempt to um, push it aside out of fear of being offensive towards people who are of different and perhaps even more rigorous religious backgrounds is, um, is stupid to our own history, but also incredibly dumb in that it patronises and denigrates the intelligence and the, the capacity for tolerance from the people who come from different backgrounds in the UK. I, th I think that's exactly, that's exactly the key point, right? Because I don't believe that a single ethnic minority person, Muslim, Hindu, whatever, is offended by the idea of Christmas. No. It just doesn't, that just, that right. idea just does not exist. But woke civil servants, whether they're in the cabinet office, whether they're in, you know, Birmingham Council or whatever, mm -hmm. this famous Winterval story, they seem to believe that they can't hear the word Christmas, that they will, it will upset them. What, what is that about? It's well, bizarre. It's bizarre, but it's also really worrying because the civil service is meant to be um, a you know group of people who are you know are not meant to be party political, but they're meant to be able to in some way be in touch with 
these sentiments of the nation in order to enact proper policy and in order to, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of keep things on an even keel. And this example, small, like Charlie said, small as it is in relation to whether or not you ban Christmas or ban the word Christmas, shows that there's a wider problem with government and the civil service and the workings of politics in that decisions are taken very undemocratically and also with no ear to what actually the feeling on the street is. And you're exactly right. I mean, I can say this as a someone who was brought up as a Catholic. Christmas in this country really has not got anything to do or it's got very little to do with yeah. baby Jesus and all the rest of it. I mm. mean, yeah, lots of us might go to the nativity and enjoy it, but the vast majority of people from whatever background you're from get involved in the festive spirit. Yes, my Jewish friends, you know, are in the middle of celebrating Hanukkah at the moment. I went to Hanukkah meals. You know, we we share in all of that. That's the nice thing about the mixing of cultures in a place like the UK is that you can do that. And there's lots of Muslim, there's kind of a complete denial of the fact there's lots of second generation people yeah. in this country who are not particularly devout in whatever religion they are and mix and share and, and enjoy, you know, spending Christmas with one another. I think it speaks to a real miserabilism, but also as Tim Black mentioned this week on Spiked, there's a there's a bigger problem with the civil service, which is that um, you know there's there are other things that have been happening in relation to the rescinding of invitations from so-called um, woke people like Afua Hirsch or Priyam Vardagopal. Um, there's a panic about what kind of sentiment the civil service has. But Tim makes the point that the vast majority of people who work for the civil service are from privately educated from mm. a particular section of society. They all, as he says, make jokes about crickets and cricket and you know Latin and stuff when they're being briefed by ministers. It's a very closed group of people. So you would be stupid to be surprised that they would do something as kind of um, tin-eared as this because they don't know what normal people are like. And that's the bigger problem. Isn't that also why they're so woke, Charlie? Because they are privately educated. They 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 come from this kind of rarefied... Uh, background. I mean, this is the the, the great myth, or, or the or the woke want to put out this myth that they are oppressed people on the side of uh, minorities. But really, it's just uh, you know, it's the establishment worldview, isn't it? Well, as the uh, as Spike's resident occasional public schoolboy contributor, it falls to me. Everyone's to, welcome. Yeah, it falls to me to kind of slander my own. Um, my own impression is different to Tim's in terms of who makes up the civil service, especially in terms of more recent generations i don't i don't think they're typically corduroy trouser wearing etonians guffawing about cricket and latin it's um people who got a 2-1 at a nice russell group university who come from middle class upper middle class backgrounds possibly from a metropolitan area and as a consequence have received kind of standard left liberal wisdom don't have um they are disconnected from what ordinary people think not because uh, they are elitist and posh, high and mighty, but because they are uh, they are left liberals, right? Because the civil service, I don't think it should necessarily represent um, the people because that's quite a difficult thing to achieve. Um, but at the same time, it has to be accepted that they come from an entirely different ideological planet from, mm. from Britons in general. Yeah, because I mean, you, you, you alluded to this, some of the people they've had speak at um, two civil servants... I mean, what uh, you know, people like Priyam Vadagopal from Cambridge, people like Afwa Hirsch from from the Guardian. Um, there was someone who said some quite shocking anti-Semitic things, who's been found out. I mean, one of the things that's striking is that you know we would see these people as making kind of political arguments about identity politics, but they would see this as neutral yeah. and as part of a bog standard 
workplace diversity thing. It's just the thing you have to know. If you're going to be hot on racial issues, you have to think like a Black Lives Matter activist, essentially. That's the problem, isn't it? It's not enough to be anti-racist. You (laughs) You must be performatively anti-racist. You must go beyond the pale. You must do more. Um, But I think so so many of these issues um, regarding who comes to speak, who gets these ways in, they come from, I think, a a failed realisation that these places are supported by a huge charity sector which kind of promotes this idea, a huge education sector which supports these speakers and gives them the kind of status and respect that you might get in order to become an invited speaker. Hmm. If if you lose the the high status which is attached to these positions or these institutions, then the civil service would have no excuse to invite them in the first place. Ella? I think you make a mistake if you think that this simply is just about a kind of lefty march through the institutions because the nature of what's happening in the civil service in relation now to the example of rescinding the invitations um, that were given out to Gopal and Hirsch and others is that there is this, uh, the idea of wokery or of a sensitivity around wanting to seem like the right kind of anti-racist or want to seem like the right kind of LGBT activists is a fundamentally establishment view, which is that the, you, uh, you have to maintain the status quo. And at the moment, the status quo is to be woke. I mean, even even the corduroy kind of trouser Latin ones are, are, are the <laughs> wokes of them all. But the more important point is, They're you know, saying uh, the civil services, you know, the, the narrative is that they're rescinding these invitations because they don't want to be biased. But of course, uh, as any good um, believer in free speech will tell you, that is exactly that the nature of cancel culture isn't just that you invite the wrong people. It's that you, uh, the sensitivity around this is that that you think that people can't hear certain views. I mean, I challenge the civil service to get us in. I mean, we could give them a good lecture <laughs> on the nature up. of contemporary politics to open up. You know, we're always talking about transparency and the need for transparency in politics. Why not have a foster a genuine culture of debate in this in the you know halls of power where our lives and the way we live our lives are the decisions around that are being made. Open that up and have some different people in there. Get Afu Hirsch in there, but also get Brendan. You know, get yeah. lots of different people and you know the knee-jerk reaction is always to ban to silence to censor and unfortunately the civil service has fallen into that trap once again thank you for listening to the spike podcast we're back every friday and you can now watch us on video too check us out on youtube or go via the spiked website which is spiked-online.com see you next time